Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is June 6th of 2013, and tonight our guest is Dr. Arnold Washington, Ph.D. He is the founder and executive director of Recovery Options. That's a private group practice that specializes in the treatment of addictions for professionals and executives. He's also the author of a couple of books. Uh, one is called Willpower is Not Enough. Understanding the understanding and recovering from addictions of every kind, and uh, he's also written some professional textbooks such as treating alcohol and drug problems in psychotherapy practice. Uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Washington, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening? I'm good, Ken, and I appreciate this opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, the title of your book, "Willpower Is Not Enough." Uh, What's wrong with willpower and why isn't it enough? Well, there's nothing wrong with uh, willpower, but sometimes um, people who are struggling with addictions need some additional support, uh, some advice, some guidance, a plan, some type of action plan. Um, So uh, the title wasn't intended, and the book doesn't suggest that willpower is of no use in tackling an addiction, Uh, just that sometimes uh, it's not sufficient by itself. Well, I think that uh, you know, experience bears that out a lot. You know, one of the you know pictures I get when we talk about someone using their willpowers—they're sitting in a chair, clenching their fist, saying, "I won't drink, I won't drink, I won't drink—and that's probably not the ideal way to approach the situation. Uh, some things, you know, we've talked about it. You know. Don't just sit there and think about not drinking because that's really about drinking. You know, do other things, distract yourself, find activities. Uh, do you find that to be true? I do, and um, uh, but I think it's also important that we underscore, and I know you'll appreciate uh, this fact, Ken, which is that uh, people are probably capable of being more self-empowered and uh, taking charge of addictive and compulsive behaviors than you know the general uh, mentality about this would suggest um, if people see themselves as uh, hopeless victims of a disease um, for which there's no cure and it's a lifelong fight, um, I'm not sure that that's the most empowering message that uh, would lead somebody to mobilize their inner strengths and be able to, uh, you know, bring more uh, power to bear to this situation than, you know, might otherwise be the case. Well, I certainly find in my own experience that the farther I'm away from my bad habits, the longer the time passes, the less uh, I think about them. Yeah, I think the passage of time is another issue. Um, Also, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the phenomenon where people mature out of uh, substance abuse and other addictive behaviors uh, as they move on from, in some cases, one uh, stage of life to the next, sometimes a change of career getting married, there are all kinds of uh, significant life events that can put somebody in a better position to face their their problem with alcohol and drugs. That's certainly true. I mean, you can drink a lot when you're in in college in the fraternity, but when you got to get out there later and go to work every day and maybe have a wife and raise children, that changes the whole situation. It does. And, you know, I see um, a fair number of... um, young professionals uh, in my practice at Recovery Options who have carried their college binge drinking style uh, over into their adult life. And now they're in their late 20s, their early to mid-30s. Uh, 
they're still drinking like they did in college, and some of them are even still hanging around with the guys that they were drinking with in college. And the pattern has built up so much momentum at that point that um, uh, it has a life of its own and can be very difficult to break. It's kind of a Peter Pan syndrome in a way. At least I feel that way for myself personally. You know, I kept thinking that, you know, I was 20 years old when I was 40 years old. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, some people take longer to grow up than others. Some some people let go of adolescence and young adulthood more easily than others do. Um, So it's not that uncommon, really. Uh, so you uh, specialize in treating professionals and high-functioning people. Uh, are there any particular challenges that you find uh, with this population? Uh, well, there are. Um, I don't think they're any more difficult to treat than other populations. In some ways, easier. Um, you know, there's the old adage: if you you have more, you have more to lose, and so that can be a motivating factor. Um, but some of the challenges have to do with uh, them being uh, sort of hard-driving, competitive, um, self-reliant uh, individuals uh, who have great difficulty uh, coming to grips with the reality that they, their substance use has uh, gotten out of control and that they may need some outside help. Well, I know Stanton Peel has mentioned in his books several times that he's found that people that have more resources intact, the more resources you have intact, the better chance you have at overcoming your addiction. Uh, Yeah, also you can say that the more resources you have, the more drugs you can buy, the more alcohol you can buy, uh, and the more you can continue uh, doing it without some of these limiting factors coming into play. Um, You know, it's interesting. A number of studies have suggested that while alcoholism may be more prevalent among the poor, Excessive drinking uh, is, seems to be more prevalent among the affluent. Uh, and it's been suggested, at least for executives, uh, it may be uh, due in part because heavy drinking is encouraged in the world in which they live. Um, they have freedom from supervision, a high-pressure lifestyle, and the financial means to avoid some of the alcohol-related consequences, and all of these add up to perpetuating the addiction. Uh, and allowing them to um, take it further than somebody with less resources might be able to do. Well, I certainly can see the point. I think it's an interesting question. I'd love, I'd love to see more research on both sides of that question. I certainly know from experience of, you know, people I've known. If you're even if you're dead poor, I know one fellow that used to shoplift two family sized bottles of Listerine every day, and he had no problem keeping his habit going. Um, well, um, you know, the, the, uh, the advantage, so-called advantage, uh, patients, um, uh, also have difficulty sometimes finding the right kind of help. Um, these are not folks who are likely to show up in, uh, standard addiction treatment programs. And that, in fact, by the way, is one of the reasons why we really don't have any good data on what the prevalence is of, uh, substance abuse among high-functioning adults because they generally don't um, show up in the venues where people are counted, where the demographic data are collected. But um, most don't want to go to an addiction treatment program. Um, They uh, want flexible, not dogmatic, and boilerplate treatments. They generally want uh, 
treatment delivered by um, professionals who are at least as educated as they are. Um, and they want a sophisticated, uh, individually tailored approach, especially if, um, uh, and as in most cases, they have uh, demanding careers, busy lifestyles, can't give these things up uh, to be involved in treatment. And uh, if treatment can accommodate their needs, they have a much better chance of uh, getting into the recovery process. Well, you know, that was a challenge that I found when I was seeking help was actually, you know, finding people that would want to, finding a, a therapist or someone that would want to deal with me in an intelligent manner because very often it was just I was dealt with in a very dogmatic manner. And, you know, I think it's really difficult if you're intelligent and you're poor, you really kind of get stuck. And because uh, I had so many people, well, you have to go to AA because I said so. And I said, I know one guy, I said, you know, can you bring me a peer-reviewed paper that uh, demonstrates this effectiveness? Because for me, it's just, it, it does the opposite. It doesn't appeal to me. And, you know, I talked to him next week. He says, I asked the doctor's opinion. He said, do it. And it's like, well, if you asked him who to vote for, should I vote for the same person he votes for? Everybody has an opinion. But I asked for, you know, peer-reviewed journal article. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one of the challenges. Um, you're quite right. People with less resources uh, often don't have access to the more individually tailored treatment. Um, the high-functioning upper-income individuals who seek treatment are in a very advantaged position in that way. Um, they can afford to go to private practitioners um, who are willing to accommodate their needs and willing to be flexible about the treatment. I mean, we pride ourselves uh, here at Recovery Options on fitting the treatment to the patient rather than requiring the patient to fit to the treatment. Um, so we don't have a, a preconceived template that a, a new patient would have to fit themselves into. We start where they are, not where you would uh, want them to be or insist on them being, as is often the case in standard programs. And we will develop a treatment plan with them that makes sense to them that uh, can fit into their lifestyle, that doesn't disrupt their home and their work life, and uh, does not uh, take a stance towards them of um, having to submit to a particular view of their problem if they want to get better. Well, I like what you said about meeting people where they are. That's the, you know, the gold standard for harm reduction is to always, you know, not try to force people to change in ways that they don't want to change for themselves, but to encourage them to change in ways that they do wish to change. And that the goals always have to be the client's goals, not the clinician's goals. Um, and in some ways, that's the hardest thing for the existing addiction treatment system to adjust to. Um, there is a greater effort among the system, in the system at large, to try to provide more uh, individualized treatment but where uh, the system, uh, I think, falls very short is in not offering people alternatives to the abstinence-only approach, at least as a starting point. Um, uh, we uh, we offer um, you know people the option of uh, their goal can be abstinence, their goal can be moderation, harm reduction, wherever it is that uh, they're willing to start, we're willing to start there with them. Uh, even if their use continues to involve, um, you know, excessive uh, drinking episodes that go beyond um, 
uh, you know, what any bystander would say is, um, you know, a reasonable amount of drinking. Uh, I just saw somebody today, in fact, who uh, at this point three times a week goes out with his friends. He's a high-level executive. Um, he meets with a group of friends after work, also executives themselves. They meet in a nice restaurant here in the city. They drink until, you know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning and get pretty intoxicated. And then, you know, he shows up at home and his wife is furious with him. And it's gotten to the point where she's now reading him the riot act and giving him ultimatums. He absolutely, positively uh, is not interested in giving up alcohol. Uh, abstinence is um, not a consideration for him. Um, so uh, is the position, uh, should we take a position with someone like that, that they're, uh, they're speaking from a diseased mind, they can't make good decisions for themselves, um, we need to press them on abstinence, uh, give them the uh, ultimatum ourselves of take it or leave it, highway or the highway, or uh, do you find some starting place for a person like that, which is obviously the way that I'm more comfortable doing it. So he left here today agreeing that he would cut that down from three times a week to once a week. Um, and we also talked about safeguards he could put into place so that you know, he never gets behind the wheel of a car when he's doing that, which fortunately he hasn't been doing anyway. Um, that it's, uh, you know, he'll only engage in that kind of excessive drinking with people he can trust. Um, and he agreed. He was willing to start there. And um, so we were able to find some common ground. And um, I think that's a much more sensible and potentially useful way of uh, meeting somebody where they are rather than reading them to riot act. Yeah, I think that can be a really good plan for some people. Well, that's very much uh, like my plan, which is I drink once a week. I drink to intoxication, but I drink at home, and I don't drink when I have to work the next day. So the consequences are just about eliminated, even though it is a night of intoxication once a week. But, boy, if, if I try to sell that to a standard addiction professional, or particularly 10 years ago, you know, <laughs> it would be you're in denial, you're diseased, you must check into residential treatment and all this. It just would not fly. I, I think uh, you mentioned that the industry is changing, and I think we see it changing slowly but significantly. It is. Uh, you know, I don't want to date myself too badly here, Ken, but uh, I got in the field, into this field back in 1975. And so I've been in this for, you know, 37 years. I've seen um, enormous changes over that period of time. Um, when I got involved in this field, there were actually relatively few mental health professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists who were involved in the treatment of addiction. Um, the idea that the basic principles of good psychotherapy, like starting where the patient is, working with the resistance and the defenses rather than against it or assaulting it, uh, had not yet been incorporated into any part of addiction treatment. Um, the integration of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy was uh, a new concept back then. Um, and um, for a good uh, Bit of the 1980s, um, uh, people got carried away with the idea that if somebody presents with addiction, like a cocaine addiction, off to rehab they go, and that it's the only way to start. Outpatient treatment was not regarded as a particularly legitimate form of treatment, but only as aftercare. 
so things have changed an awful lot. Um, and I find it very interesting. You know, I came to this field as a psychologist, and um, uh, I was quite familiar with uh, client-centered therapy, which is, you know, the therapy that was promulgated by Carl Rogers back in mm-hmm. the 40s and 50s. Um, now it's called motivational interviewing. Um, but it's uh, it's an old method of psychotherapy, which has been with us for a long time. It just had not been embraced in the addiction field until somebody put it in a language that addiction treatment professionals could understand, and, and that's been a fortunate development. Well, I think Rogers has a huge deal to teach us still today. I have his uh, stuff on my bookshelf here. Um, and I think one of the things he said, one of his famous quotes is, when I first accept myself as I truly am, that's when I can truly begin to change. Yeah, he was a, a, a very strong proponent of self-acceptance and even more so a proponent of helping people to find the healthy parts of themselves um, and emphasizing uh, to patients seeking uh, help that there was more right with them than wrong with them and that it was better to focus on the positive than on the negative, that um, Every problem behavior did not require a diagnosis as some form of pathology. Um, And establishing a a positive working alliance, therapeutic relationship was the centerpiece of um, therapy and the vehicle that allows any clinician to have a positive influence on somebody seeking their help. So it's the therapeutic alliance, uh, that working relationship, um, that is key. And actually, um, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, the Project Match studies that were mm-hmm. funded by the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse some years ago. Large nationwide study that compared the different methods of alcoholism treatment, the 12-step approach, the motivational interviewing approach, and the cognitive behavioral approach. And they found much to... Um, many people surprised that they were equally effective. Um, But when they actually looked at what was going on in the treatment, they found that some of the counselors who were seeing the patients in the study had much better success rates than other counselors, and it raised the question of why. So with a particular theory or methodology uh, of the approach didn't make a difference in terms of success rates, why did some counselors do a lot better than others? And they reviewed tapes of the sessions, which had been done with the permission of the clients, and they found um, reliably that the clinicians who took a more positive, warm, engaging stance had much better success rates with the clients than did those who emphasized confrontation of denial and had a more controlling, paternalistic approach to the clients. So that says it, I think, resoundingly. It um, doesn't matter what your treatment philosophy is. What matters is how you interact with the people who seek your help. And if you're respectful, you're warm, you're engaging, you give people the benefit of the doubt, you're willing to work with them and their problem rather than against it, uh, that you're more likely to be able to um, engender positive change. 
Yeah, I think therapeutic alliance is huge, and there's quite a bit of research on that besides Project Match. I know Scott Miller uh, has been studying that, too. Uh, he wrote a book called The Heroic Client, where he discusses that. There's a lot of research on it. There is. Um, uh, and if, if you've been in practice, anyone who's been in practice for very long can see clear evidence of that for themselves. Um, I think sometimes the clients are, especially clients who have been through traditional programs and bounced out of them, uh, are almost uh, taken off guard a little bit when somebody is talking to them in a way that uh, encourages their participation in the treatment planning process and is willing to set goals with them that um, may deviate from the singular goal of abstinence and is willing to um, work with them in a kind of incremental stepwise fashion. Yeah, my experience was, you know, a lot of people I I tried working with, it wasn't even so much that they were abstinent, saying abstinence. Their first goal was to get me to attend AA meetings, which for me, um, my background, I was brought up as a fundamentalist evangelical Christian, and I walked into those meetings and said, oh, my God, it's the same thing. Let me escape. Um and, uh, you know, we don't ever mandate people to attend AA. We certain, certainly support their participation if, if they want to go. We do suggest it to people as an available support system, uh, one of many available support systems. Um, and we are certainly not anti-AA by any means, but we certainly don't believe that there is one pathway to recovery for everybody and that the only way to overcome an addiction successfully is to accept that you have a lifelong disease for which there's only recovery and no cure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, because I've worked a lot in needle exchange, too, I've had lots of colleagues that are members of 12-step programs, usually Narcotics Anonymous, but they probably go to AA, too. But, you know, so I realize that it can be a good path for everybody, and the important thing is, you know, to respect everyone's right to choose their own path. Absolutely. Um, and um, now there have been, as you know, many studies that um, have tried to look at um, how AA involvement contributes to successful outcome and treatment um, for people who are enrolled in addiction treatment programs and were participating in, in these studies and who were you know, randomly assigned to either uh, receive the counseling by itself or counseling in combination with attendance at AA meetings. And there is some evidence, uh, certainly, that uh, AA can enhance and facilitate success uh, for people involved in treatment. <clears throat> but there's nothing to say that mandating and forcing, them, forcing it down people's throats is beneficial. Well, I think I'd like to see more research on this, but I think people really tend to self-select the best thing for themselves and I think that's been understudied but my experience really tells me that you know people will pick what will work for them um, and um, that means that we have to provide um, a menu of treatment options for people rather than the uh, the singular path and for the uh, you know the executives and professional addict or alcoholic they um, the fact that more and more of them have been seeking treatment in the past 10, 20 years certainly 
has spawned um, the proliferation of private treatment that lies outside of the established addiction treatment system, uh, treatment that um, makes a more deliberate attempt to accommodate their needs. Um, now, I'm not just talking about private treatment uh, like luxury rehabs um, uh, that attract people with the, uh, the nature of the environment, but um, private treatment that offers them the option for truly individualized treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, executives and professionals are uh, their critical consumers when they're looking for addiction care. Um, they don't easily uh, swallow wholesale um, a particular treatment philosophy right off the bat. Um, and uh, whatever treatment is offered to them is something that has to make sense. They're typically uh, well-educated individuals. Uh, they go online. They research um, uh, not only the backgrounds of the clinicians that they consider seeing, but the information that you give them. Uh, I find that for my uh, executive and professional patients, you know, they, they know a lot about me. They know more about me before they come in the door than I know about them. That's for sure. Now, I'm curious, do you get a number of people, a lot of people that uh, want this off their medical records? They want to pay cash and not use the insurance so there's no record? Good question. Um, Yes. And uh, it's not so much about paying cash as not filing insurance claims. Um, Because uh, all too many people have found when they submit claims to their insurance for under a, a diagnosis that includes alcohol or any other form of drug abuse, any kind of addiction treatment that it will get in the medical data bank and it'll follow them for the rest of their lives. So it becomes a problem in applying for life insurance, disability insurance, health insurance. Um, I see people who are sometimes involved in contentious divorces. They don't want any paper trail of them getting help for the addiction, uh, fearing that it can and will be used against them, and, you know, they're certainly not delusional about that. Um, So, yes, there are people who want treatment under the radar, and um, often for good reason. Um, As enlightened as you and I and our listeners may be about addiction uh, as a health problem, not a moral problem, um, I'm afraid, you know, even though society, is their attitude is getting better, uh, and we're not quite there yet. There is still a lot of stigma attached to addiction. There is discrimination. Uh, can't be ignored. Well, most professionals even, they still treat addiction. And I think the DSM, at least the older issues, treated addiction as a lifelong disease that could only be arrested and never cured. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of why it's a big problem. It follows you forever. But do you, do you find any validity in that view? In the view that it, you, it's a problem that um, you'll have forever, regardless of what you do? Yes. Um, well, as I said before, I, I don't believe that everybody who has a substance abuse problem, even a serious substance abuse problem, has the disease of addiction. I think some people do have the disease or disorder, whatever you call it. And th- this raises another interesting issue. It's kind of related to the debate about DSM-5 and its impact on the addiction treatment field and how we view addiction. So if you think of uh, substance use disorders as lying on a continuum, 
rather than falling into artificial categories of abuse and dependence, for example, but that there's a continuum of substance abuse problems, substance use severity, the severity of consequences, a continuum of the you know severity of uh, related mental health problems, and you don't try to impose an artificial structure on it, then if you look at, I think the disease model is a good model for people who have the most severe form of substance use disorders. And I say that because um, it has pretty good predictive value for people with the most serious problems, people with the most serious, the most chronic who've been through many relapse cycles, whose lives have been in shambles as a result of their use of alcohol or other drugs. Uh, the less severe somebody's substance abuse problem is, the, the less good fit the disease model is for their problem. And it leads to the unfortunate situation uh, of somebody with a less severe problem showing up at an addiction treatment program, and they end up being the square peg uh, getting forced into the round hole. Um, I think that clinical mismatch is the source of a lot of problems for people seeking help for addiction because there's been a general failure to recognize that there are less severe forms of substance abuse than addictive disease and that we can't look at everybody with a substance uh, abuse problem like we look at somebody, a woman who's pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no in-between. Um that's not true for substance use disorders. It's not just a binary decision. Um, and uh, I think we need to move towards more differential diagnosis. I think the revision in the DSM actually uh, takes us a step in that direction by putting this on a continuum of substance use disorders. And now there's a severity rating, mild, moderate, or severe. You know, that manual doesn't speak to the, you know, the utility of the disease model or its applicability. It doesn't get into that. But uh, I think we now have at least a diagnostic system that um, allows clinicians to take the view that, okay, if you have a less severe form of the disorder, then maybe you're appropriate for less intensive treatment. It's not that if you qualify as somebody with some kind of significant substance abuse problem, that therefore you belong in an addiction treatment program. Well, to me, one of the interesting things that's in my mind, um, Prochaska study of smokers, um, they found that when people quit smoking, you know, heavily addicted smokers, I was a very heavily addicted smoker, and a lot of them, you know, after they were quit for a year, they went into a stage he called termination. They weren't thinking about cigarettes anymore. And I went through the same thing, you know, after a certain period of time, you know, cigarettes are just not on my mind. I consider myself cured. You know, I'm not, but there was another population that said that they were still constantly in maintenance mode and still, you know, they were still thinking about smoking. So I just wonder about for everyone, even for very severely addicted people, if a lot of people don't actually go into termination mode. Um, inevitably, uh, I think that's true, that there are people who um, are able to give up the substances, no longer preoccupied with them as time goes on, it recedes uh, into the background of their life. And, um, you know, all but leaves their conscious day-to-day -day functioning. And for other people, it's a 
struggle. It is an ongoing struggle. You know, undoubtedly people fall into those different categories. Some people have to work heroically at maintaining their abstinence from their drugs of choice. Uh, other people seem to get to a stage where they have established some momentum and they're able to carry forward without heroic efforts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then we get into the real world and the insurance companies and they look at you, look at your records. You had a diagnosis of alcohol dependence 40 years ago. You can't have life insurance. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, I still get I get contacted by patients I saw 15, 20 years ago who now uh, you know, got married, have kids, want to increase their life insurance or they are getting a new disability policy or um, new health insurance policy, and they're desperate if they need some documentation that they were successfully treated and they no longer have the problem. Now, if you did have an addiction problem 20 years ago and you were in treatment for a couple of years and you left treatment in good standing, um, but in some of these cases, most of them, I've had no contact with them over these past many years, they're left in this very difficult position of how do you prove that the, the problem's over? If the mindset is that the problem is never over, Mm-hmm. You're never cured. You're never overcome it. It's a lifelong problem. There really is no way to prove that. Yeah, exactly. So I think you know, it's, it's still a problem. There's a problem treating it as a lifelong disease that's never cured, and it just doesn't fit the facts. At least not for a lot of people. Well, as you know, we. Uh, um, when somebody comes into treatment and they get through the initial phases, um, many people benefit from uh, uh, help with various relapse prevention strategies, their cognitive behavioral strategies. But uh, for some people, uh, long-term recovery requires getting to some of their core issues, the the issues that were underlying the addiction that were driving their desire to self-medicate, unresolved issues. In some cases, it's emotional baggage from the past. Uh, certainly the legacy of traumas uh, leave people, many people prone to addiction. Um, and uh, if these issues aren't addressed, uh, for some people, they get caught in a long-term repeating cycle of chronic relapse. and. That is one of the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the justifications for psychotherapy. In the, <clears throat> excuse me, Ken, <clears throat> in the treatment of addiction, that uh, psychotherapy for some people is critical. Um, now, it, it was bad mouth for many years in the addiction treatment field, but I think the view is changing. Uh, do you see that as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's more and more people that recognize uh, dual diagnosis, it, it exists, and the way to treat it. You, know, the, you actually have to address both issues at the same time. I think that is the best way. Andrew Tatarski has talked a lot about that. Pat Denning has talked a lot about that. Yeah, you can do psychotherapy while the person is still using substances, and they can work on you know, changing their substance use for the better at the same time they're working on their mental health issues, and they actually feed, in, feed into each other synergistically, and it works very well. Yeah, in my mind, you know, psychotherapy starts uh, from the first time you meet the person. 
uh, <clears throat> certainly as a excuse me, Ken. Uh, certainly as a psychologist, that's my orientation. Um, uh, I see the uh, importance in the psychotherapy in the treatment of addiction, both in the short term and the long term. In the short term, it's more about using those skills to engage the person in a process of uh, self-examination, taking a step back from their addictive or compulsive behavior, uh, starting to implement some control over the behavior, sort out uh, their values, their goals, what's meaningful to them. This is all part of an ongoing conversation. and part of the therapeutic process. Um, you know, in, in previous years, previous decades, it was thought that psychotherapy was either uh, of little or, or no use to uh, people with addiction problems. Um, I, unfortunately, that was the legacy from uh, trying to apply psychoanalytic uh, treatment to people actively addicted, addicted, at least classical psychoanalytic treatment, not the more modern versions of it. Um, so therapy got a bad reputation in the recovering community as, um, uh, among some people, it, it was seen and may still be seen as a form of enabling, of uh, trying to under- helping people understand their addiction rather than absolutely stop it dead in its tracks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and a lot of, uh, <clears throat> now it's my turn, uh, a lot of people in uh, the traditional approach and the 12-step approach in particular, they, they are real true believers that they have the, the one and only truth and that there is nothing else. And, I mean, not everyone that goes that's a member of 12-step programs is that way, but there are a lot of people that, that feel that way, and they're just hostile to other approaches. Um, unfortunately, and um, there are times um, where I have patients who tell me that um, they were uh, advised by their sponsor to stop going to therapy or stop taking medication, um, which is, I think, is happening less and less, but uh, it does still happen. And uh, uh, needless to say, that can be quite dangerous. Yeah, the the AA General Service Office actually... Uh, produced some official literature that said, no, you can't tell people what to do with their medications. This is not part of AA. So, you know, that's between them and their doctor. But, yeah, a lot of sponsors still don't want to pay attention to that particular pamphlet. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it leads us back time and time again to the uh, fundamental concept of individualized care, of being able to start where the patient is. Uh, I mean, motivational uh, strategies uh, are uh, uh, founded on that cornerstone of the uh, individualized treatment and where ambivalence is seen as the core of the problem rather than denial. Um, I mean, an awful lot of aggressive confrontation, confrontational tactics are done uh, in the name of breaking through denial and seen as the one and only way by some uh, to help the person come to grips with the reality of their addiction. Now, uh, aggressive interventions, um, I'm sure, in some cases, have saved people's lives and gotten them into treatment before they've hurt themselves even more. But there's also potentially a downside. There are people who have become suicidal as a result of those kinds of aggressive confrontations. They can have uh, lasting negative effects on relationship with family members and, and others. And so we have to be careful with uh, 
using what are potentially some very powerful tools without respecting that um, they can have both positive and negative effects. It's kind of like using a medication uh, at too high a dose. Mm -hmm. Now, the the clients you see, are they mostly alcohol users, or do you see people that use lots of other substances? What's the profile? Um, of course, alcohol uh, has been and will continue to be the number one drug of choice among people who develop problems with addiction. So I would say the larger part percentage of people that I see, their primary substance is alcohol. But of course, over the past 10 years, uh, especially, uh, prescription drugs, particularly prescription painkillers, opioids, um, you know, it's rapidly become the nation's fastest growing drug problem. And among the um, high-functioning people that I see, they have access to prescription drugs. They can afford to buy them. They can afford to go see doctors who will prescribe them. Uh, some of them have friends who are physicians who write for them. And, um, you know, one of my subspecialties over these years, Ken, has been the treatment of addicted physicians. So I see many uh, healthcare professionals, physicians, and others who um, have uh, developed problems as a result of self-prescribing of controlled substances, whether it's Percocet or Vicodin or Oxycontin. In some cases, sedatives, benzodiazepine, uh, like Xanax or Klonopin, um, uh, and in other cases, uh, taking uh, large doses of sleep medications like Ambien. Uh, do you ever talk to the people that are using opioids about Narcan or overdose prevention? Um, well, the um, uh, w when I see somebody who's actively addicted to opioids, um, you know, the first uh, step is if they want to detox, then, you know, that's the direction that we go in. Um, if they want to be stabilized on uh, Suboxone, for example, and don't want to detox immediately, or even people who uh, want to be on Suboxone for longer, that's fine, too. Um, and then there's also the option after detoxifying from opioids of being on naltrexone, a narcotic blocker, a long-acting narcotic blocker, which is, gives pharmacologic support to preventing relapse. So after somebody's detoxified from opioids, they're at least about a week free of any narcotics. They can take a first dose of naltrexone without experiencing withdrawal, precipitated withdrawal. And then if you take naltrexone daily, you get up in the morning, swallow the pill, you're basically now pharmacologically immune to relapsing to opioids, only to that class of substances. It doesn't work with any other types of drugs. Um, and it's very good to help people get traction in recovery. So if they take naltrexone, say, for the first three months uh, of their treatment, they're they're basically uh, getting an insurance policy against relapse. Now, mm -hmm. it's been a particularly useful medication with um, addicted physicians, um, particularly anesthesiologists who get addicted to operating room narcotics, uh, because sometimes without the benefit of the protection of naltrexone, uh, it's too dangerous for them to go back into that setting where they are, you know, the narcotic drugs are the tools of their trade, and the potential for relapse is extraordinary. Um, so it can be a very uh, useful uh, treatment for that subgroup. It's a very special subgroup of people, but 
success rates are good, not just from the medication by itself, but when combined with therapy with a more comprehensive program. The Narcan that you mentioned earlier, as you know, is a drug that's usually given in the emergency room if somebody comes in comatose from a narcotic overdose uh, from heroin or other drugs. Uh, they can be revived almost instantly with a shot of naloxone, which is a short-acting narcotic antagonist. Um, so this class of drugs, known as narcotic antagonists, can, can be very helpful uh, in the treatment of addiction. And more recently, uh, in the past 10 years or so, now we have buprenorphine, the trade name being Suboxone or Subutex, uh, which is an excellent option for um, many people with opiate dependency as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, well, my day job these days is working in needle exchange again. I've worked in that in the past as a volunteer. Uh, that's how I learned harm reduction, and now I'm making some money at that again. Um, so we do overdose tra- overdose reversal training at the Lower East Side Harm Reduction. And, you know, to me, it seems like the, the middle class, it, there's, such a, there's such a need for overdose prevention training and Narcan because there is such a great deal of opioid painkiller abuse out in that, in, you know, that segment of society. That's where all the increases in overdoses have come from. You know, heroin overdose in New York City has been pretty constant for the last 10 years. Look at the opioid painkillers and, you know, it's increased, you know, exponentially. Yeah. And, um, um, unfortunately, uh, that's been true among uh, teenagers and young adults as well as older adults. Um, and opioids, the, the overdose threshold to opioids is significantly lowered by taking sedatives like benzodiazepines like Xanax or Clonopin or Valium. So a lot of overdoses to prescription opioids are the result of combining uh, opioids with those sedative-type medications. Uh, or combining it with um, uh, large quantities of alcohol. Well, it's just something that runs through my mind. I have Narcan in my backpack every day when I go to work, so I think about that a lot. Um, Well, um, I think we've covered a lot of material that we were going to cover, so is there anything that you'd like to leave our audience with? Um. I agree. I think we've covered a lot, a lot of ground, Ken. I uh, just am, uh, um, as I'm sure has been become evident in this conversation, a strong proponent of individualized care, um, of tailoring the treatment to fit the needs of the patient rather than requiring the patient to fit the needs of the program. Um, and that uh, private office-based treatment is a valuable option for people who don't want to be treated in the standard addiction treatment system, um, and who can benefit from more individualized contact. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Arnold Washington. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, you're welcome. And the website is recoveryoptions.us, and the book is When Willpower is, uh, Willpower is Not Enough. That's it. And join us all next week. We will have another guest. And you can also check out, we're doing some video recordings on YouTube for Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center. Go to YouTube. L-E-S-H-R-C is the channel name. And we will see you all next week. So thank you and good night.